Welcome to Raising Parents 2.0, where we learn to take fear and worry out of life and parenting and lead with love and leadership. I'm your host, Saloni Singh, a mom, a life, family and self-mastery coach. Every week, I'm interviewing inspiring people from all walks of life to talk about the essential ingredients to create a life that inspires you, your children and make a positive impact in the world too. A life you love living. So let's begin. And today on the show, I have a very special guest. He has been a mentor, a teacher, best known as Super Coach, and inspired me hugely in my coaching journey over the years. His name is Michael Neal. And what I love about Michael is that he can tell the truth in the most simplistic and hilarious way that nobody else can do. So, and one thing I have learned from him is that how not to take life so seriously, and I'm still learning. If you don't know about Michael Neal, you must go and watch his TEDx talks. Amazing, amazing talks. Why aren't we awesomer? And can a TEDx talk really change the world? Michael Neal is an internationally renowned author, speaker, thought leader. Challenging the cultural mythology that stress and struggle are a prerequisite to creativity and success. He has many best-selling books, amazing books, podcasts, and he has inspired and impacted millions of people on six continents around the world. So without any delay, let's welcome Michael Neal. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. I, 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 always, I, I always hear my bio and, and think, <laughs> Who, who's this? It's amazing. Okay, I have to tell you something. I, I'm sure you don't remember this. How I met you, that was a very hilarious incident. So it was, I think, beginning of 2010. I used to live in London and I was doing coaching happiness with Robert Holden, my, my okay. teacher. And I think the last day, Robert has invited us for a get together. And I was standing there with a friend and I'm like, you know, this guy, he sounds exactly like Michael Neal. And then I'm just staring and saying, oh my God, doesn't he look like Michael Neal as well? And in the meantime, you turn around and you said, hey, lady, who is hallucinating me here? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, are you Michael Neal? And you're like, oh, may I have the permission to be? <laughs> so it was just real. the sense of humor you have is just, just amazing. And I love that, really. So again, thank you for being here on the show, Michael. And uh, I have read... Um, four of your books. So in the beginning of my coaching journey, I read You Can Have All You Want, Super Coach, then uh, Inside Out uh, Revolution, and recently I, I read The Space Within. So it's very evident, I think, with the books as well, like this is a huge, huge difference, what Space Within you're talking about. So really, first thing I want to know is this, Michael, that what has been your spiritual journey? How have you evolved over the years as a person, as a coach, father, husband? And how have you reached where you are? In, in, in some ways, the, the, the answer is in spite of myself. Like, that's how. Because I, I didn't come from a religious family. I didn't come from a spiritual family. I came from a scientific family. So the whole idea of spirituality and stuff was a little like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You go do, you go play. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be in the real world when you're ready for us. So I, 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 it was kind of a surprise to me when I would find myself moved by things. Like, like genuinely touched by spiritual readings or teachings because I really wasn't looking for them and I really didn't want them. Mm. 
Now, I was so unhappy. I was so depressed. I was for many years suicidal. So I was looking for something. I just, I had to be pretty desperate that I found it in spirit at the time. I, I, I read everything that appealed to me, basically. I, I studied with anyone who was around who I was interested in. I just kind of followed my nose. I didn't have any plan or direction or loyalty. I got into the idea for a while of enlightenment. I thought that would be cool. Um, and I'd read about this notion of the midnight club. Those of us who were committed to being enlightened in this lifetime before midnight, before our deaths. And, and so I, I, I got into that and I was a, you know, I literally would get up at 4 a.m. to meditate. And, and I remember one day having the experience, and I'd had a similar experiences before of like a deep quiet. So not just like my mind settling, but something bigger than that. And I could feel what I'd read in the books that my, my body was dissolving and, 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 and I, you know, a little bit of me was going, is this it? Am I, it? And then I heard a voice and I've only heard a voice twice in my life. And the second time was even more inane than this, but, but, but I heard a voice and it said, you did not come here to leave. And somehow I knew that like that, I didn't have to be told that twice. And I kind of stopped the pathological meditating, um, which was really me trying to escape the human experience. And I started to try to embrace the human experience. And so in a way, my spiritual path has been to embrace being human as best I can. To embrace being human. That's, that's beautiful. You use the term pathological way of you know, meditation. Yeah. I want to know more, but what made you feel that was pathological? Oh, well, I mean, I've never used the phrase before, but I, but be, because I was compelled to do it, I had to do it. If I didn't get my meditation in, like something terrible was going to happen. It was like, no, I can't, you know, be a husband or a father. I've got to meditate so that I can be a husband. Like it just looking back on it, it was like, wow. I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard, there was a Indian guru, UG Krishnamurti. So not J. Krishnamurti, but U.G. Krishnamurti. Mm -hmm. I always think of him as the reluctant saint because he was the only guy who ever sounded pissed off about being enlightened. Like it was like <laughs> he, he, like the guy in the Matrix who wanted to get plugged back in for a good stake. Like he, he, he really seemed to not like being enlightened. And he would tell a story about his father who was a, a banker and considered a very spiritual man in India. Coming home every day without fail from work for two hours to meditate. And if the kids interrupted his meditation, he would take off his belt and beat them. Oh, my God. That's pathological meditation. Yes, yes. I get that now. I get that. So the experience you share, Michael, I think a lot. I just realized this is a parenting podcast. Hey, kids, that's not the advice <laughs> I'm trying. To, I just want to get that out. But, uh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what you just said, I really resonate with that. And I think many people would resonate with that because throughout our lives, we all do have this kind of experiences. Like I very vividly remember on my 40th birthday, 
I don't know what happened. It was very strange because everybody around me was asking. I just suddenly was just so happy. I would say it was not a normal happy. It was not exciting happy. It was just very blissfully happy. And it it stayed with me like almost for two months. Like I was describing to my sister once she was asking, what is it that why you're so just happy? Because uh, it's not that all of my goals were achieved or there were certain things had happened. And I told her that it's just like even if I'm you know fighting with with my husband or even if I'm in the middle of a problem, there's a background music and that music is bliss and I can just feel it. And then by the third month, it just starts fading. And when I was reading your book, I remember you have also shared some ex experience like that. And I'm sure a lot of people have the glimpses like that, sometimes in nature or on a meditation retreat or anywhere where this deep space of peace, we, we touch upon that and then we lose it. And as you have written in the book that for, I think for 18 months, you were searching to go back to that place within you, which you felt. So I want to know, like, what was your experience and about that, that you may have mentioned that you were chasing that experience. And I remember I chased almost for an year, like how to decode. What was it that happened? Because I lost it and even I just couldn't find because I didn't do anything to reach there. So the question is, how do we really connect to that place? Well, I'll sort of share it uh, like a compressed version of, of, of the story for me. How, how it was. So I, again, I was very troubled in my mind. My, my circumstances weren't terrible at all, but my mind was. And I, so for me to experience peace was a big deal. It was like, it wasn't like, oh, that's nice. It was like, what is this? Mm. Like being introduced to a new kind of chocolate or something. I, you know, it's like, oh. and, and, and the experience that I had was when I was closing the refrigerator door. And the, 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 my memory was the, the, the first thing I felt, I could feel the breeze from the door. And it was profound, the peace that I felt. And I literally spent the next six months opening and closing refrigerators trying to get it back. Like anywhere I went, if there was a fridge. It never worked. <laughs> Right, because it wasn't the fridge, but I didn't know that. Like now I'm like, Duh. but, but I, I didn't know. Then I had the experience that I write about in the book where for six weeks I was in that space. And I had no idea how I'd gotten there, but I was there. And there was nothing to do. There was nowhere to, nothing to work out. There was no, it, 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 you know, I, I, I wish I'd realized that it might fade, but of course, when you're in it, you don't, because I might've written notes to myself like, hey, you know, um, but it was 18 months till I, I wasn't 18 months seeking to get it back. It was 18 months before I noticed it was gone. Like I had just gotten back into my old habits of thought. And then I found myself there again. And what I've come to see is that's, that's the whole game. The default the way we're made is that sense of peace. That's what it feels like to be you without all the noise of who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be and what you got to get done and what you should have done. That peace is what it feels like to be alive. In mysticism, they call it the simple feeling of being or ananda, you know, a sort of a quiet that can turn into bliss. But 
we all have habits of thinking that we've developed since birth, not on purpose, right? But we just get, that's the way the brain works. It grooves. It's like, oh, okay, we'll think about this. And that, and it gets used to it. And you get caught back up in that and you lose touch with the being. And just the more time I've spent exploring this for myself and with other people around the world, the more I've seen, it, it's the simplest thing in the world. And that's what makes it so hard. All that ever happens is we distract ourselves from it for an infinite number of very good reasons. Well, I don't have time for that. I've got kids to raise. I don't have time for that. I've got a job to go to. I don't have time for that as if your being isn't there when you're parenting, when you're doing your job, when you're doing all that important stuff. It isn't about finding a monastery somewhere, you know, or a nunnery or wherever else you might go. It's recognizing, oh, shh, this is me. This is me. Not me different to you, me the same as you. We have lots of differences, but we have this in common. We are made of the same stuff. The same life runs through us. The same aliveness animates us. The same being looks through my eyes that looks through yours. And what it sees is all the differences. Which is part of the fun of being human. Nobody goes to a movie to tell themselves it's just a movie. It's just an illusion. You know, you don't pay 10 bucks or whatever you pay to go to a movie. It's been a while since I've been to a movie. But you you don't pay to go to a movie to tell yourself it's a movie. You don't incarnate, as far as I can tell, to tell yourself, well, it's just an illusion. It's just a dream. You come here to experience here. But the reason that we'll pay to go to a horror movie, but we won't pay to get mugged, is because we know the movie is temporary. We know it's just an experience. It can't affect anything fundamental. And when we start to wake up to that same truth in our lives, then you can throw yourself into life and lose yourself in it without ever really losing yourself. And we just do things differently from that place. We parent differently from that place. So if somebody says, well, how do you do, what do you do about this? And what do you do about that? Wrong question. Because when you are in that place in you, you'll do it the best you can. Same as me, same as anyone. But what comes to us when we're settled, when we're present to presence, when we're in our being, it's a whole other order of intelligence than what we do when we're in our habits and judgments and good, bad, right, wrongs. So, so I totally get it. And I think a lot of people who have experienced or who are going through this journey would understand this. But a question, a lot of my clients also ask me this question that, okay, they say that, oh, I hear you or I hear Michael and I hear something. And they all are saying the same thing. And maybe I have experienced this when I was in a forest or maybe when I was on mountain and I have sense, definitely had that sense. But when I come back to my practical world, when I am in the middle of this pandemic, and I know there are employees I need to pay and money is not coming in, and I'm in the middle of this whole crisis, how do I go back to get in touch with 
with the being you are saying, which is always there, whether you're parenting or whether you are being a leader or whatever you're doing. So how do you really get back to that connection with the being? I, I think, like I'm not sure this is a universal, but from everything I've seen, I think it begins with really knowing that that's a better way. So I used to have a lot of clients come to me with anxiety and worry. That was a sort of a specialty I had for a while. And I would often ask them at the beginning of our time together, if I could wave a magic wand and make it so you could never worry again, would you want me to wave the magic wand? And nobody said yes. They all wanted me to lessen it. They all wanted a little bit more control over it. But there was this universal idea that, no, worry is good for me. A little bit of worry is good for me. I just don't want so. Well, that's a little bit like saying stabbing yourself in the leg with a fork. I, don't, I, I just want to do it less. I don't want to stop. It's like, it doesn't actually help. It doesn't keep us safe. It doesn't motivate. Well, it's the same with this quiet. If I really think I'm going to do better sorting out my business that's going bankrupt, sorting out my family that's falling apart after I shoot myself in the foot, no amount of technique is going to get me to stop shooting myself in the foot. But if I really see, hey, I'm going to do better when I can show up as the wholeness of me, all my limbs, however many I got, right? All my spirit, however much is coming through me right now. Then it's actually not that hard to experience more of it. But as long as I think the stress and the tension and the pressure are an important thing to keep me focused and get me, then it, it doesn't matter. I could give you the best technique in the world. I could give you a magic pill and you wouldn't take it. You'd forget to take it because at some level you thought it was important that you felt stressed about it. You thought it was helpful. Now I'm going to say what I say to everyone, which is no, it's not, <laughs> but you kind of have to look for yourself. Do you really do better stressed than at peace? And I've okay. yet to spend time with anyone for whom the answer winds up being yes, even if it is when they start. Yeah, that perfectly makes sense. And I think most of people would agree with that. But then the question that comes to my mind is this, and uh, a lot of people then feel that, but we are so used to, again, the conditioning, the thinking, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's like you're stuck. You're literally stuck with your own belief system. And how do you get rid of that? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's, it, 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 when asked like that, how do you get rid of that? <laughs> like you, 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 you don't, but you, you learn how little it actually matters. So um, I don't think I tell the story in Space Within, but my wife and I moved, we had the whole family actually, we moved into a house uh, and it was in the woods and we thought, oh, this is going to be our retreat. And we really loved it. And the first night in the house, we go up to our bedroom and all we can hear is, <laughs> like, what the? And it turned out there was a, a broken street light outside our bedroom window, which of course we'd never known because we'd never seen the house. We'd never been in the house at night. So we thought we were like, we've been caught and this is terrible. And how are we ever going to relax here with all that noise? And we got to call the council. We got to do. And, and 
then of course the day happened and we forgot about it. And then the night, oh my God, we got to come on. And like this went on. And then like six months later, I noticed it was still noisy, but my brain had filtered it out because it had learned, oh, that's background noise. Now, what was interesting is about six months after that, I noticed it was. So at some point they'd fixed it, but I didn't even notice because I'd stopped noticing the noise. So it's more like that. Right now we can obsess about it and we can, how do I get rid of it? And now it becomes like the most important, annoying thing in the world. Whereas when I realize I don't have to get rid of it, it'll come and go on its own. It's just a habit. It's just a old way of doing things that I've gotten used to. Well, then it starts to fade into the background. Does it really go away or do I just stop noticing it? I don't know. But effectively, it is no longer making my life choices. It is no longer parenting my children. It is no longer living my life, even if it's still present. It seems to the similar idea you were mentioned, uh, Michael, emotophobia, right? I, I found that quite fascinating. Do you want to share a little bit about that? It's the same thing. So, yeah, the first thing I will qualify is I made it up. It's not a real thing. But emotophobia. So I used to do a lot of phobia cures in my work. And I, I started to notice that the, the number one phobia that people had was what I made up as emotophobia, which is fear of emotion. Like a radical fear of sadness or anger or any feeling other than happy. Right? Now, not everybody's got it, but a lot of people do. And I certainly had emotophobia big time. And what became apparent to me was there's no such thing as a solution to a feeling. Like, yeah, we can change the way we feel in the moment, but it's not a problem. And then I started to go, well, if it's not a problem, what is it? Like when I got less scared of it, I got more curious about it. And that's something that happens when you work on a phobia. When somebody's less scared of snakes, they start to learn which snakes are safe, which snakes are unsafe. When they're not scared of a spider, they start to go, okay, poisonous spider, not poisonous spider. So you're still sensible. You're just no longer terrified. Same thing with emotion. Once I wasn't so scared of it, I started to look at it and see, oh, oh God, there's a whole bunch of feelings that come up that let me know I'm really up in my head. So that kind of upset and angsty, stressy, pressure, fear, like all of that is letting me know, wow, dude, you are scaring yourself. You are winding yourself up tight. Probably not the best time to write your novel, like to, to have that important conversation with your partner. Right. And so I started to realize, oh God, my feelings when I'm not trying to get rid of them or change them are just giving me a reading on my state of mind. Like what's the state of my mind? Oh, the state of my mind's pretty good. I can trust what's coming through it. Oh, the state of my mind is like my bedroom when I was 12. It's like, you don't want to go in there. Right. And, yeah. and so whatever, whatever's coming to mind about what I should do and which boarding school I need to send the kids to is probably not going to look that way an hour from now or tomorrow. So suddenly those same feelings that seem when you're terrified of any negative emotion, 
like a big problem to be solved, now they're your friends. Like if you could hire somebody or, or, or uh, you know, get a, a monitor that you could wear and the monitor would beep whenever you were getting stupider, right? Like, so it would let you know you're just temporarily dumb, right? We all know we get temporarily dumb, right? Well, well that would be a really useful monitor. Absolutely. So the more that's beeping, beep, 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 beep. Okay. I really think that this person is the biggest jerk in the history of humanity and they need to be killed, but apparently I'm off. Beep, 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 right? You, you know, <laughs> that would be really helpful. Well, that's what our feelings are. They're letting us know, hey, um, in Supercoach, I talk about it like a traffic light. You know, when, when, when you're all up in it, it's letting you know, hey, red light, you might just want to pause your thinking there. If you're kind of unsettled, that kind of, a lot of people go, oh, you mean like every day feeling, you know, where it's like, well, that's like a yellow light or an amber light. It's just going to proceed with caution. Look both ways. <laughs> right. And when you are in that quiet, in that more peaceful place, that more settled, present flow place, flow, go, you're good. So it's more about really watching and being okay and accepting. Maybe. Well, yeah. I, for me, that's a good start. Okay. But I can accept the smoke alarm, but I'm better off listening to it and maybe turning off the, the stove when it goes off. Like, so smoke alarm's not a bad analogy. Most people, if they, they, they have to beep, goes and it's like, oh, a freaking beep. And like in our, we, we had one in the kitchen for a while that was just turned up too high. So every time my wife cooked, it went off and she just found up taking the smoke alarm down, right? That's us with our feelings. It's like, this is annoying, get rid of it. Yeah. Totally ignoring the fact that we might be burning down the house. Well, you know, then you get to the point where it's beeping and you're like just sick of it, but it's fine. Like, let's just, just go to bed. And you can, you can kind of ignore it after a while. But that's not what a smoke alarm's for. It's there to let you know there's smoke. Check it out. Might be fine. Might not be. So that's what our feelings are. One of my favorite um, things, Sid Banks, the, the Scottish enlightened guy that I learned a lot of this from, would say is that your feelings are, your, are the barometer of your thoughts. They're just letting you know how it's going up there. And that's really helpful. Because then I know... I kind of know when to trust myself and when to be a little bit suspicious of my own thinking. And that proves very helpful when I teach this in businesses. I, I talk about it in different ways, but one of the things I'll inevitably say is, look, this is going to help you with two things. It's going to help you be at your best more of the time. And it's going to help you do less damage when you're off your game. And every business I have ever worked with has come back and said, learning to do less damage when they're off was worth far more to the bottom line than just being at their best more of the time. Mm -hmm. And I would say the same thing's true in parenting, right? It's great when you can be at your best with your kids. They love it. You love it. It's all good. But doing less damage when you're not at your best, that's why my kids still like me in their 20s. Mm -hmm. And I still love them. 
what about the deep seated emotions michael like i i see in parenting that plays a huge role like people feeling like since childhood maybe just that feeling of being unloved it might be because of any reason any experiences they had in their childhood or feeling unlovable or not good enough because maybe their dad was never happy with the way they performed and then of course it has been transferred to their children and they might recognize it feel bad about it but not able to understand really what to do with it well the first thing and and i'm aware i'm kind of speaking in in broad generalizations and so it'd be possible for somebody to go and I, and it would be accurate well he doesn't know my experience mm. well no of course i don't but i probably know experiences as bad or worse cuz i've spent a lot of time in the last 30 years talking to a lot there is no such thing in my mind as a deep seated emotion a deep seated emotion is just one you feel a lot and you felt for a long time right same thing it's exact same dynamic a deep seated smoke alarm is one that's been going off since childhood right it's not it's still just a smoke alarm so this idea that i feel unloved will know you can think some really unloving thoughts about yourself and others but that's not really a feeling like there is a feeling that's letting you know wow whatever i'm creating in my mind right now is not nice but we had learned to attribute our feelings to the world we've learned to attribute our feelings to circumstances we've learned to attribute our feelings to what somebody else said or did or didn't say or didn't do that's not how they work the detector can't tell me the temperature of the meat that i'm cooking it just tells me there's right my check engine light does not tell me what's wrong with the other guy's it just tells me what's going on with mine our feelings are not telling us anything our emotions are not telling us anything about the world they're telling us everything about the state of our own mind now we also can pick up on other people and what's going on in them we have feeling that does that but that's not the emotions that's a different level of feeling it's a different kind of feeling all your emotions are telling you and honestly this in the inside out revolution i said the only thing you need to know to change your life forever and you know 24 languages and i don't know how many copies later apparently a few other people saw there was something to it it's seeing that we live in the feeling of thought our own thinking not the feeling of our circumstances not the feeling of the world If you start to see that your feelings become your best friends they really do they're really helpful they're no longer something to get rid of fight against solve or accept they are part of our natural guidance system that is always guiding us home guiding us towards the peace within guiding us towards our best selves our deeper nature some of them saying colder 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 some of them saying warmer 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 but like any game of warmer colder if you like i i i once played that game with an audience in sweden and i asked for the swedish word for warmer and the swedish word for colder but i got them mixed up and i could not understand why the game was going so badly and i realized it was cuz i thought the colder signal meant warmer and so i was going in the direction of it and i thought the warmer signal meant colder so i was moving away from it emotionally 
That's what they're telling us. Colder. Your thinking is taking you away from home. Warmer. Whatever's going on up there, stick with it. It's good. It's going well. It's bringing you back to your best self. Uh, something I remember you have talked in the book, a quote from Scott Pack, I think, yeah, where he shares that it's very important to have a strong base camp. I find it related what you're saying that you that feeling of being home and I think he's written that all successful mountain climbers know that they must spend at least as much time tending to their base camp as they do climbing the mountains so what what is that base camp for us how how we must you know tend? it's the the simplest and yet sometimes the hardest to see thing home base is you at your best. It's you at peace, not at your best, like high performing best. Right. You at your best in yourself. You, we all know it. I sometimes will ask audiences or even clients, when's the last time you felt the way that you wish you could feel all the time? That feeling is home base. It's a guide at least towards home base. And everyone has different words for it. They have different language around it. They might even have different stories around it. Like my story about, well, it's got to be something to do with the refrigerator door. But it's actually doesn't even need a story. It's our true nature. It's who we are before who we've made ourselves up to be. So it, it, I think you're, you're right when you said, because it's so simple, it's hard to believe, <laughs> really. I'm, I'm, working on a, I'm working on a new book right now called It's That Simple. <laughs> it, it is that simple. <laughs> but again, this, this is the question I hear, and even it comes to me a lot of times, of course, that, okay, I get that. I get that it is there. How, and we keep on losing it, keep on losing it. And uh, what is it that we just keep coming back to it? What would you, because we know, we love how-tos how uh, <laughs> as human beings. So what would you say about it? Like, what is the way? What is the way to keep coming back to that? The, the most reliable thing. I'm going to say it the way it's coming to mind, and then I might tell you I was lying, but the, the most reliable way that I know to come back to it is to realize that you can't leave. You can think you've left, but you've never left. Wow. And we've all had that experience, maybe sitting somewhere and we've gone a million miles away in our heads. And then we kind of come back to ourselves and we're still right where we always were. Say everything's the same, but we've just been on a journey. Might have been a nice journey, might have been an awful journey. It's always that. We are always already home. But it's really, it's the most simplest, normal thing in the world to think our way away. But the second it settles, we settle. And we realize, oh, I was really away. Like these things, these physical body things, uh, they're always here while we've got them. 
right? They're a pretty good marker. That's why so many meditation practices are built around the body and the breath. Because the body is always now. The breath is always now. So people like those kinds of techniques. And and if if those techniques work for you, why would you stop doing them? Because some guy on a podcast said you didn't need to. What I've found is that it can become sort of like a, a pathological practice, a neurotic practice, when actually it's just whatever it takes to remember. Like as soon as I notice I'm away from home, I'm back home. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I want to know more about meditation. Uh, You had written that there's a difference between experiencing the absence of thoughts and the presence of mind. Hmm. I want to know more about that. Well, so I've lately and just and actually you mentioned robert holden and i learned these these this from him he, he was describing that in um mystic christianity there's something called <clears throat> via negativa and via positiva so two roads to truth two roads home and via negativa isn't about negativity it's about noticing what isn't god noticing what isn't self noticing what isn't us So all the roles we play and the Scooby-Doo masks we wear and the societal get-along things we do. And stripping them away and going, well, not that, not that. It's not that. It's not that. It's not this scary thinking. It's not this angry thinking. It's not this sad thinking. And then you start to get underneath that. Then there's the positiva, which is, What is the nature of God, life, spirit, whatever language for that deeper dimension of life somebody has? And so I tend to talk about it in terms of the absence of thought and the presence of mind. So for a lot of people, meditation is almost like self-hypnosis. It quiets the noise. And it's lovely because it's nice to not be at this low-grade stress thing that a lot of us carry around habitually. But the presence of mind, the presence of presence, the presence of aliveness, that takes us places. So we can get there via negativa. We can get there by getting rid of everything that's not it. And we can get there via positiva. We can get there by really attending to that in ourselves, attending to home base. All roads lead to home. And sometimes it's easier to clear away the debris and reveal what's always been underneath. And sometimes it's easier to go right to it. But neither's better. Like it doesn't, I always think of it in terms of like, I used to fly a lot before the pandemic. And one thing that I always noticed is it didn't matter whether I got into the airport two hours early and there was nobody, or I got to the airport late and was in a crowd. Once I was on the airplane, it really didn't matter how I got there. 
To me, the state of meditation is that. Like if you get there through a practice, great. If you get there without a practice, great. Once you're in the state, once you're in the space, it doesn't matter how you got there. Beautiful. Lovely. There's another thing I want to talk about is forgiveness because uh, this is the most beautiful thing I read in the book was where you have explained that forgiveness is not just letting go of the judgment but to hold that person and even ourselves in the same space of love as before that you know horrible unforgivable thing ever happened and i really thought because i'm not a person i, I don't hold many grudges but there have been couple of instances where maybe if a friend said something horrible and i noticed that every time i would meet that friend even if i thought oh i've forgiven that was a very small thing but the first thing that comes to mind is when i meet that person is oh yeah they said this horrible thing so when i read this i was like is it even possible because it's like a memory so even if i have i have not that strong emotion attached to that memory is it possible really possible when somebody does something which has hurt us in that moment whatever it could be whether it was a mean thing or not whether it was our perception to go back to the same space of love we were holding for that person yeah. i'm really curious it it, yeah. it 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 absolutely is that's the first answer and in fact, I can pretty much guarantee you already have experienced it many times if you've got kids. Oh, yes. So I was about to say, for family, I, I don't know. Yeah, it just happens, yeah. Right. So, so we know it's possible. Right. But somehow in our little brains, or big brain, if you've got a big brain, but like somehow in our brains, we think, yeah, but that's family. Hmm. Okay. Why, why would that be different unless you go, well, I've got to forgive them. Mm. Well, actually you don't. And there are people who don't, right? There's plenty of families where there's no forgiveness or very limited forgiveness for the time being. But if you know that, like we've all got somebody in our life who could pretty much murder our grandmother and we'd still forgive them. Like for whatever reason, they just get a free pass. It's just seeing that you're not serving anyone. You're not creating a safer world for yourself by not granting that to everyone, and especially yourself. We think if I forgive, it will happen again. That's just not true. If you don't understand how things work, it might happen again. If you don't really know what happened, it might happen again. You know, I can totally forgive a tiger without getting into its cage. Because I kind of understand a little bit about tigers. <laughs> right? So I can completely forgive you and not let you be around my children. I can completely forgive you. And because all that means is I am no longer carrying judgy thoughts that hurt me in some weird attempt to punish you or keep me safe from you. That's not what, that doesn't do anything to you. I, I've always loved, and I think it comes from the 12 steps, but there's a, a great expression that um, 
holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It doesn't work that way. If it did, there'd be an argument for not forgiving. So kind of like when we were talking earlier with, with worry and, and well, in order to stop worrying, you have to start by really getting it's not helping you. In order to find your way home, you have to really get that you do better without the stress and the pressure. Well, in order to forgive, you have to really see that holding a grudge does nothing for you. It does nothing for the well-being of the planet. Then it's a real question. Okay, given that there is nothing about this that I want, how do I do it? Then there are things that probably can help. Right Then if you read practices, they might be helpful to you in a way that they haven't been. Then you start to see, and this is what did it for me, where it really changed, was I started to see what, what Sid Banks calls psychological innocence that people really are doing the best they can given the thinking they have that looks real to them. So if I really think you are causing my unhappiness, well, I'm going to be really fun funny with you, right? If I think you have my well-being in your hands, I'm either going to be the biggest suck-up and probably then the other half of the time I'm going to be flipping you off and, and giving you the finger and saying things about you behind your back. Of course I am. Who wouldn't? And what I find is when I see that, and the same is true of me, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, but every one of them at the time made sense until it didn't. Then there's nothing to forgive because it's like, well, I couldn't do anything else at the time. I could, I can now. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. Would you share something about your, your parenting style and how your journey has impacted you as a father? Well, I'll try. And, and I say that not because I've got nothing to say, but because I almost have so much to say. And I'm like, ah. But, but um, I think my wife and I started from the premise that we wanted our kids to learn more from life than from us. So, you know, especially with my wife being British, very into manners and wanted to teach that. But in terms of life, we were those parents who, if there was a small staircase with a carpet at the bottom, we wouldn't put a baby gate up. Because we knew the kid would be okay. And once he fell once, wasn't gonna fall again, right? So we always had that sort of spirit behind our parenting of, hey, let life teach you the lessons. We're not gonna say, hey, don't, you know, you can't behave that way. It's like, no, life will teach you you can't behave that way if you really can't behave that way. We don't need to add our opinion to it. So that was, that was there from pretty early on. But for me, so much of my parenting has come from seeing that my kids have their own wisdom. So not that there aren't things that are, were unacceptable in our home. 
but they were just unacceptable in our home. It didn't make them a bad kid. So I remember a conversation I had with my son, Oliver, when he was probably 13. So he was just getting teenagery. And he, I, I, we went to uh, Universal Studios and I uh, caught him shoplifting candy from the candy store. And I made him go back and give the candy back. And he was so mad at me. And, and he swore and said some things. <laughs> that we weren't really into saying it. And so I, I, I pulled the car over and for whatever reason, I was in that calm place. Like I, I wasn't, the smoke alarm wasn't going off. I actually was really present. And I said to him, Hey, I want you to know that, that I understand that for, for the next sort of, six, seven years, your brain's going to be on drugs. And he's like, I don't do drugs, dad. And, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't mean that. Yeah. I mean hormones, right? Like you're at a stage of life where hormones are going to flood the system and they're going to make you feel crazy sometimes. And sometimes you're going to have so much energy, you're not going to know what to do with yourself. And you're going to get so angry, you're not going to know what to do. And sometimes you're going to get sad and sometimes you're going to get elated. And I want you to know that I know that I cut you a lot of slack for that. And that language isn't okay in our house. That's all. And we had a great, it turned into a beautiful like half hour just chatting about. And then he finished and he said, dad, just one thing. I was like, yeah, what? He said, can you have this conversation with mom? <laughs> Look, the, the best of our parenting didn't really come from a philosophy. It came from moments like that, where we were able to just get really present, see, see not through our upset, but see what was going on and speak to it as best we could and understand how I'm not going to expect stuff of my kids I can't do. Like that would be weird. I'm not going to hold them to a standard I don't hold myself to. And I'm going to have rules in my house. And it was never a, there was always a sense to me. See if this makes sense. I, I, we had a dog. Uh, our first dog was a, a Cocker Spaniel in Britain. And it was the, God, when would it have been? It would have been in the early 90s. And literally, we got our dog two weeks before they banned Cocker Spaniels for two years because they'd become so inbred that they had this rage disorder, like a, okay. um, and, and this dog had a rage disorder and the vet told us to have him put down. And I was no dog of mine. And, and so I hired a wolf trainer from the movies to work with our dog. Okay. And the wolf trainer ultimately said, you really need to have this dog put down, but he tried for a while. And I remember one day I was out walking the dog and, and one of the things the wolf trainer had done is he, he said, always make sure you're carrying a big stick, not to hit the dog, but so when the dog goes nuts, it has something to attack that's safe. Okay. So, so the dog, I'm out on a walk and, and the dog is attacking the stick. It's a little dog, but it's mean when it gets mad. And, and I'm trying to do this. And this guy across the street, who's like six foot six and built, is looking at me like, what are you doing to that dog? 
Like he's going to beat me up for he thinks I'm beating up the dog. And I just went, wow, that is such a family dynamic. Whoever's bigger controls the situation. And I got really clear that that would be disastrous as a parent because I'm not always going to be bigger. And I saw that when Oliver was maybe one year old. And so it never looked like a good idea to me to win because I was bigger. Now, I'm not saying I never did win. because, Like there were times where like, yeah, I would grab him and pull him. But, but generally speaking, that didn't look like parenting to me. That looked like, man, that is last resort. And so consequently, there was enough respect in our house that when the kids did something that wasn't acceptable to us and we punished them, they never fought the punishment. In fact, sometimes they would actually go negotiate up. Actually, dad, I think this is, I think you should ground me for three weeks. This was really out of line. I'm like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> like, and that, again, that wasn't, I didn't know it would play that way. But if you've got a house filled with love and respect, it's not going to go that wrong. Yeah. And respect starts with you. If you don't respect the, the, the genius in your kids, the wisdom in your kids, the love in your kids, the aliveness in your kids, the spirit in your kids. You're not going to win for that long demanding that they respect it in you. That's that's beautiful, I think, to wrap up our session, Michael. I would love to ask any last message you would like to give to the audience and viewers. I mean, just what occurs to me is I didn't want to be a parent. Like I, I, it was not my choice. Um, I was involved, but it was not my choice. Uh, I had no idea that most of the love I've experienced in my life came from that. And so have I found it hard at times? Yes. Have I had the odd sleepless night? Yep. Has it been worth it? Beyond anything I could have imagined. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. I really appreciate you taking time for us. Thank you and namaste. Thank you. Wow, that was Michael Neal. And what a soulful conversation. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I would highly encourage you to buy Michael's book, The Space Within. I'm sure you're going to love that and you're going to connect with many things that we discussed on the show today. I facilitate a small group coaching program, Self Mastery Inner Soul Circle, with a small group of men and women. If you are someone who would like to enhance your connection with your inner self, with your highest being, your divinity, wholeness, and your connection with the source, I would invite you to come and join me in that soul circle. I will be launching the circle just in a few weeks. You can apply for the same through my website or you can send a request on coach at salonisync.com. I would like to meet you at the circle. In the next episode of Raising Parents 2.0, I will be seeing you soon with an amazing, amazing guest again. Till then, keep growing, keep evolving and keep inspiring yourself and your children as well. Thank you for listening.